We'll start this morning with uh, almost a little bit of a riddle. You guys trying to figure out how this stuff goes together. People, as a general rule, uh, don't particularly like taking tests, but they're often found using rulers to measure things. People don't like being examined, but they're perfectly willing to put a tape measure to good use. Are, are we getting somewhere? Most people don't like a, a pop quiz, but they're perfectly willing to do whatever it takes to balance their bank accounts to make sure they have sufficient funds. You see, we rarely uh, enjoy having other people test us, but we uh, see the value in testing ourselves and things that belong to us. We don't want somebody else to test us. We don't like to be tested by others, but we see the value in examining ourselves and having tools and things at our disposal to use that are to our advantage, to test, to measure. Because see, we're all the time needing to measure things. We're all the time needing to know uh, the exactness of something, to measure things, to balance things. It, it happens all the time. We need to know, is it correct? Is it right? Is it enough? We have to figure these things out. We don't like people to test us, but we enjoy at times and at other times we just need to. We recognize the value of testing things. All right. So today what we have is John, the Apostle John again, uh, giving us some tools, giving us some things that we can use to compare ourselves. Now, of course, not to compare ourselves to one another or to other people. That's not what we're comparing. Instead, we're going to compare ourselves to the ultimate tool for the Christian, the Word of God. We need to compare ourselves to what the Word of God says, and that is going to be what we need to set us on the right path, okay? That's the tool that John's giving us today is the Word of God, and he's given it to us throughout this message series uh, so that you may know. That's what we're calling the message series, so that you may know, but it's also the purpose statement, right? John uh, says at the end of his letter, he is able to say these words, these things, 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that's you Christians, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, right? So that you may know that you have eternal life. John gets to the end of his letter and he's able to say this. All this stuff I've written to you, I've written for this purpose, so that you would know. So that you wouldn't knock on wood, cross your fingers, cross your eyes, toes, anything else, but so that you may know for sure that you have eternal life. And so every message in this series is going to be based on words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, designed to lead us toward this kind of confident understanding, this kind of assurance. Every message brought from a text that was designed and delivered so that you could have this kind of assurance, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this morning I want to bring you a message called Loving the World, Loving the World. And so what we're not going to see this morning is a passage telling us all the things that we're already doing uh, perfectly right, doing exactly the way we should, and just simply reassuring us that we have our salvation and that we are on the right path and that nothing needs to change. That's not what we're going to see. Instead, again, it is like John is handing us a tool, something like a measuring stick, giving us a, a tool to measure ourselves spiritually. That's what we've got. And with John's words, we can determine with accuracy 
just where we stand. And just like any project that requires some measuring, we may find that we need to do uh, some sawing. We may, may need to, to cut some things out or off. We may need to do some sanding. There may be some rough edges that need uh, fine-tuning, smoothing out. We may find that to be the case. Or we may find that we need to go and acquire some additional materials. We've got some things we need to add, right? We may find that. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not there yet, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at uh, just three verses this morning, verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Just three verses, but it's packed full uh, of powerful, practical information for the person who seeks to be spiritually minded, and the person who is seeking to know that they have eternal life, all right? 1 John chapter 2, start with me in verse 15. The Bible says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. All right, so we're going to break this down uh, the only way I know how, simple. <laughs> we're going to break this down in simple fashion today. Nothing fancy, nothing complex. Uh, the power, of course, is going to be in the Word of God and what you hear and decide to do with it, okay? So the first thing John points out to us is the fact that there are two choices. There's two choices. And I say this, um, I say this all the time, but like the Apostle Peter, I don't mind reminding you. I don't mind reminding you of these things. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, Peter says, right? Here's the reminder. The Christian life is not complicated. It's not complicated. It's not easy all the time. It's definitely not easy all the time. But it's not complicated. What I mean and what I tell you all the time is it is rarely difficult to figure out what is right and what is wrong, right? It is rarely difficult to figure out what the right thing to do is and the wrong thing to do is. But what many of us have come up against and we realize from experience is that the choosing of doing the right thing is often rather difficult. Knowing what is right and wrong is not hard. Choosing to do what is right and to forsake doing what is wrong, that is where the rubber hits the road and it gets a little dicey. It gets a little difficult. John shows us in verse 15, though, that there are just two choices, right? It's simple. There's just two choices when it comes to where we need to place our love. That means our commitment, our dedication, our devotion, uh, where we willfully choose to, to dump all of our resources, what we're going to work on, what we're going to give our money to, uh, where we're going to put all of our efforts, that sort of thing. We got two choices, and I don't know if it jumped right out at you or not when we first went over it, when we first read verse 15 or not. It may not have been the first thing you saw there, but it's there in the second half of the verse, right? Do not love the world nor the things in the world. There's the command. And then you've got, if anyone loves the world, okay, there's a choice. If you choose to love the world, if you do that, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have both, right? Well, we can see that from the second half of this verse. If you choose one, you don't get the other. You have two choices. Now, let's back up. We'll talk about those choices in just a second. That'll be our focus. But first, look at the command here. The command is, not to, lo or is to not love the world nor the things in the world. Now, uh, as I kind of said before a little bit, uh, the, the Greek word here, what this word for love actually means in the original text, it's referring to the kind of love that can be commanded. It's not one that, you know, oh, well, that person is attractive, so I will love them because of what I might be able to get out of that relationship. 
It, it is not some sort of love that is based on a, a feeling of attraction or something like that. This is the kind of love that says, you know what, this is the right decision. I should serve here. I should sacrifice for this cause or for this person, right? It's, the kind, it's that kind of love, the giving of self with nothing expected or desired in return. You guys know the Greek language had multiple different words that refer to the different reasons or the motivations that a person might give of themselves, might commit themselves. But this is the self-willed love, the choosing kind of love. Now, this is obviously the kind of love that we should have for God, right? We, we can figure that out. Sometimes what God wants us to do is not going to be the thing that we necessarily uh, just have a real strong desire to do because it might put us in an uncomfortable or even a dangerous situation or an awkward situation, but we still need to love God. We still need to desire to serve him, to sacrifice for him, uh, to give to him, right? This is the kind of love that we should have for God, the kind of love that is commanded for us to have uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that kind of love. And isn't it interesting, John is saying, don't have that kind of love for the world. Don't voluntarily choose to give yourself to the world to the world's things, to, to the world and what is in the world. He, and he's saying it in the present tense. He's commanding Christians in the present tense to stop loving. It's like it's something they're doing right now. And this is Christians, to those who know God, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, right? In the present tense, he's saying, stop loving the world. Stop giving yourself to the world and what is in the world. That's the command. Stop willfully dedicating yourself, your time, your resources, your will, your waking hours to the pursuits of the world. Boy, is that a message for America or what? You know, not to, not to get on the, the soapbox, but my goodness. that I mean, if you hear that, and your spiritual ears don't go, whoa, this applies to me. This applies to the church, my family, myself, uh, personally, uh, the church, everything. Then, then you don't have ears to hear right now. You need to, need to tune those things on, turn those things up, and start listening. Because this is a message for you today. This is, this is one that isn't one of these, well, I'll spout it off. And whoever uh, needs to hear it, hopefully they'll listen. This is for all of us. We're surrounded by this junk. Don't dedicate yourself. Don't dedicate your resources. Don't give all you've got for the pursuits of the world. That is precisely the message that anyone outside the church is feeding to you and is living by. And some Christians, many Christians, are also living for the pursuits of this world. But this is a command to stop doing that. The command is to stop doing that. Then, after the command, John makes sure that we understand that there are just these two options, right? And they are options. Like I said before, you can't love God and the world. You have to make a choice. You must make a decision here. You have to make a decision. The second half of verse 15 said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you choose the world, you don't have the Father. These two loves they're, they're mutually exclusive, all right? That, that's just a, a quick way. Maybe I should have started with that. <laughs> the quick way of saying that you can't, have, uh, you can't have this one and that one. And if you choose this one, then you can't have that one, right? Whichever way you go, you are forsaking the other, one way or the other. If a person gives himself to God uh, like he should, he cannot be giving himself to the world. But if a person is uh, enamored and fascinated and attracted and, and uh, committed to the pursuits and the pleasures of this world and the views of this world, then it is evident that he does not have love for the Father like he should. 
If you're following and pursuing the things of this world, the money, the career, the house, the car, all this stuff, you know, whatever it may be, uh, the, the, the experiences that you can post on social media and make people think that your life is good, you know, if you've got the kind of good you're, you're wanting them to think it is, if that's what you're chasing after, the love of God is not in you. You can't fill your cup up with that stuff and then say, you know, well, I have love for God because I'm here right now. I came in the snow. Come on, Jake, please. I'm sorry, this is what it says. It's black and white. We can't sit here and mince words. It's not good for you. It's not good for me. It's not good for us to, to sit here and pretend and play around and act like we can pursue both. We can't. You've got to pick one or the other. To the world and to most of the church, this is called being radical. To God, this is called being faithful. And this is what we're supposed to do. It, James 4.4, 4, uh, James begs the question and then answers it. He says, do you not know? Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? There's a question. Don't you know that, Christian? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's just strong language, right? An enemy. Not really, right? I mean, it's not really an enemy. Yeah, an enemy. You are in opposition to God. You're going against him. You're for him or you're against him. You're with him or you're not. And so if you want to be friends with the world and you want them to praise you and you want them to say, hey, he's doing it right, she's doing it right, they're getting along well, they're making progress, they're climbing the ladder. If that's what you want, then you're not with God on that. You're not with God in a relationship sense. He said, if that's what you're pursuing, you're an enemy of God. Man is going to love, man is going to give himself to, mankind that is, commit himself to something. It is in our God-given, literally, that's not just cliche kind of phrasing, okay? It is in our God-given, he gave us this nature, right? Because we are created in the image of God. Later in this message series, we're going to come across 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 that says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love, right? It's in our nature to love. We're going to give ourselves to something. We're going to commit ourselves. We're going to go full bore for something, right? Something's going to catch our attention and we're going to chase it. We're going to pursue it. We're going to commit ourselves to it. It's in our nature to love, to sacrifice, to, to give ourselves and dedicate ourselves to someone or something. The command is to, or the command is not to stop loving. The command is to recognize that we have two choices and to choose not to love the world, but instead to love God. Not to uh, keep loving the world and claim a desire to love God. Stop doing that. There's two choices for the placement of our love. Christians need to be very careful. We need to be very deliberate about choosing not to give ourselves to the world, nor the things in the world, as John says, but instead to offer ourselves without exception and without competition to God and His will. That's a big old heavy statement. Without exception and without competition. Don't, don't, don't put something in competition with God. Just stop doing it. I made it sound really easy, didn't I? It, it is easy to decide that we should do that. It is hard to do it, right? It's not complicated to see that we have two choices and that it needs to be black and white and we need to make our life black and white and start cutting out all that gray stuff that we think exists and doesn't. It's hard, though, to do it in real life, but we, we're, we're called to do it. We're commanded to do it. Are we, are we a, a notch above? Are we living to a higher standard or not? As Christians, we're not better than anybody, but are we living to a higher standard or not? Yes, we are. We're called to, 
And if you're not, there's your measuring stick. Let's rise to the occasion. Let's rise to what God has called us to, all right? So there's two choices. But we also see that there are three dangers pointed out here. There's three dangers. John's given that command not to love the world nor the things in the world. And he's, he's get, told us that those two choices show us that um, if a person loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. Now he goes on and he has this connected thought that points out the very things that if we are not careful and if we are not deliberate about this, we easily and often find ourselves becoming committed to this junk. We find ourselves becoming uh, committed, giving ourselves to loving these very things that he's about to point out. And boy, when we say them, we're like, ew, ew, no, we're doing it. We're doing this stuff day in and day out, many of us, and we need to stop it, John says. These are the things that are of the world that we often love rather than loving that which is from the Father. And guys, these are the very desires and the sources of pride that are hallmark signs that a person has very little interest in spiritual eternal matters. So this is a big deal what we're about to cover. These are hallmark signs that if you're committed to these things, if these are pursuits of yours, then John is saying that that person has very little interest in spiritual matters, okay? So we need to be aware of these things, understand these things, and be on the lookout for these things. John says in verse 16, all that is of the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we have these three categories, these three dangers that, that John describes as all that is in the world. This is all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Let's just take them in order, starting with the lust of the flesh. Now, first of all, we need to understand that the word that lust in the English language has been used in such a way that, that, that the modern usage of the word pretty much refers to only one thing. We typically use the word lust in our English language, especially when we're talking about outside the church, because inside the church, we understand there are different kind of lusts. There's lust for money and lust for other things. But even still, it's always got this really, really gross connotation. Now, the modern English usage of the word outside the church is almost always talking about these uncontrolled, untempered uh, desires for sexual gratification, right? You know, lusting after her, lusting after him. That's, that's like the only way that it gets used. But the word that John actually uses here is more in line with our English word desire. Not necessarily lusting after something, but, but a, a desire. Or we might could even use the word appetite. So when John refers to the lust of the flesh, a more accurate understanding for us would be desires of the flesh, Right? I'm not trying to make it uh, less powerful, but, but let's be uh, honest with the way he's saying it. And let's not make it uh, something that it's not. Our desires or even appetites for things that satisfy the flesh is what he's talking about. So food, right? Our flesh needs food needs fed, right? Water, drink, right? Sleep. Uh, and yes, sex would be on the list and all kinds of other things that our flesh does desire, that our flesh it has this itch and needs a, a satisfying uh, solution, right? Needs that satisfaction. None of these desires are inherently sinful just simply because we have them. God created us with some of these desires, with these appetites, and there are healthy, proper, right ways to satisfy these desires. However, there's, uh, the, the world's way of doing things is to make these things the primary focus of our life. 
right? You know, ooh, look at the kind of restaurants they eat at all the time, right? They're just satisfying the desire of an of a, of a actual human appetite for food. But, but man, the world wants to, you know, flash that stuff up for all the world to, to see and hear. And there's people taking pictures of their food, people. Come on. This is ridiculous. You know, there's people snapping photos of French fries and be like, look where I am. You know, and that's, that's good and fine because some of you do that and, you know, I don't want to get in hot water over something so silly like that. But you know what I mean? Like there's people who will even take that stuff though and they'll put it into overdrive and they're showing off, right? They're, they're, they're chasing that stuff. They, they want to be able to eat at the best steakhouses and, and silly things like that, that sort of stuff, which by the way, the best steakhouse is Texas Roadhouse. I'm just saying, I don't care how fancy you get, Texas Roadhouse is still going to be the best. It doesn't matter. I don't know what they put on that stuff, but it's really good. All right. But when we focus on these things, even though the, the things themselves are not inherently sinful, we, when we love these things, the kind of love John is saying not to love, the commitment, the, de the dedication to making our lives a, a pursuit of these things. When that's the case, then we've made these things sinful, right? There's people who do this. They base their lives on food, drink, sex, and relaxation. Things that, that have their proper place, but are often uh, overemphasized or abused by the world. Our bodies need meals, but when we gorge ourselves and our brother or sister right next door is starving, uh, there's something wrong right? Our bodies will suffer terribly without water, but when we become winos, or as they call themselves, connoisseurs, <laughs> there's something wrong, right? We've overdone it. Our, our bodies were designed to reproduce and populate the earth, but when we abuse what God has designed and misuse what he's given us, there's a problem. God has shown us the value of, of rest for our bodies, but when we try to find ways of getting out of work all the time, and when we try to take a two-week vacation every other month to some, you know, exotic location, well, now we're just talking about laziness, right? And that's a problem. That's a sin, right? Hopefully that's not a newsflash to anybody in this room, all right? Well, let's talk about what John refers to now as the lust of the eyes, all right? The lust of the eyes, again, we're talking about what is more accurately described as the desires or maybe even the appetites uh, of the eyes. Uh, this time we're talking about desires that are created by or we might say enticed by our eyes, right? We see something and it causes us to want to do something sinful. That's what we're talking about here. We can look at things and we can see uh, an opportunity to do good, right? We can see someone who's struggling and we can go help them. Or we can see someone who's struggling, and again, we can get out that nasty old cell phone and take a photo and be like, look at this sucker who can't even do whatever it is they're trying to do, right? We can look at things, and we can see different things, and we can do different things based upon them. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, Scripture says Jesus seeing, right, using his eyes. God gave us eyes. They're not sinful. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus seeing the people he felt compassion for them. That's a good thing. In Matthew 14, 14, the Bible says, when he, this is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And again, he felt compassion for them. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, it says, when the Lord saw her, this woman, he felt compassion for her. Guys, when our eyes are connected to spiritual concerns and committed to eternal matters, we will see and be motivated to do good like Jesus. That's a good thing. However, we also have examples of when this gets turned the wrong direction, when this goes the wrong way. We have examples in Scripture of those who acted on sinful desires, having been enticed by what they saw. In the Garden of Eden, there's just one tree, 
right? One tree that was commanded that they not eat of, that Adam and Eve don't eat of. And how are we told that Eve viewed that tree? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Scripture records for us, as Eve is, is processing her decision to do what she knows she shouldn't do, right? We have a little insight into her mind here in verse 6, Genesis 3, 6. It says that she saw, right, she used her eyes, that it was a delight to the eyes. She's, she knew she shouldn't do it, but she was looking at it like, it looks like something really good. It looks like something I should go ahead and do, right? Her eyes were telling her, go ahead, do it. You will like it. You will enjoy it. So you should do it. That's what her eyes were telling her. That's the sinful way to see and choose what you're going to do as you go forward. You remember Joshua leading Israel to battle against Ai and losing? Remember why they lost in Ai? Somebody took something that was uh, under the ban, right? God had forbidden that certain items be taken from the spoils of war. And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, we have uh, the guilty party, uh, a man named Achan, explaining to us what happened, right? Joshua's all upset because he cannot believe after the great success they had been having and the success he knew they would have because the Lord was with them, he could not believe that they lost and God tells him, somebody took something that they shouldn't have taken. Someone's up to no good. And again, the guilty party, a man named Achan, explains in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. He's speaking. He says, when I saw, this is Achan fessing up. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. This is the way the world looks at a lot of these things and sees these things. We, what do you hear in the news? What do you hear in interviews? What do you hear from your own friends and family? When, when someone uh, loses something of value and it actually gets returned, we're blown away. We're shocked that someone saw my wallet and it had $43 in it and they returned it and there was $43 in it. It's shocking because we expect, because that's the way the world looks at things, that this is an opportunity. It looks good. It's $43. I didn't have that $43 before. And this person, you know, clearly wasn't that important to them because we think they just took out the wall and just threw it on the ground, right? We start, we start justifying. The world does. They justify these things. They say, you know what? I mean, if it was that important to this guy, he wouldn't have left it laying here, right? This is the way the world looks at things like this. Looks at, looks at, this kind of junk as opportunities. The way Achan looked at this stuff that wasn't just wrong to take, but God said it was wrong. God made a specific, specific rule. Don't take certain things. And he knew what they were and he took them anyway. Again, this is the way the world sees things. But sometimes we're just plain looking at things we shouldn't. It's not just that we look at something and we choose to do the wrong thing. Sometimes we're looking at stuff that we shouldn't be looking at at all. If I gave you five seconds to think of an example right now of someone in the Bible who looked at something that he shouldn't have looked, that they looked at something that they shouldn't have looked at, what example would you come up with? All oh, God's people said, okay, I thought that you would all say the same name, David. Okay, some of you, I guarantee, I'm sure said it, but it was hard. to say. <laughs> One more time. I was afraid to ask you to say it again. <laughs> King David, right? King David. <clears throat> in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, 
we have uh, the, example, the, the example of this happening. Someone looking at something they shouldn't have looked at in the scriptures. And verse 2 tells us what happened. And then, well, tells us what was done that shouldn't have been done to begin with. And then all kinds of stuff that, that went wrong after that, right? In verse 2, it says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. That's his home. And from the roof he saw, used his eyes, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, David shouldn't have been out. Many people have tried to make a lot of um, justifications for why David would have been uh, on his rooftop at this time, at night. And they'll say, well, he should have been at war and he wasn't at war. And so, you know, he was up on top of the roof. And, you know, and they, they, they say things that they're not painting David as, you know, like, oh, what he was doing was perfectly fine. But they're, they're trying to give some kind of justification. There's no reason for David to be on this roof. Look through all the reasons that people give. He should not have been up on this roof. He should not have been doing what he was doing. Uh, I, I believe he was just up there uh, out of whether it was boredom and he thought maybe I'll see something interesting, there's nothing interesting you should be seeing at night from your roof. Okay? So I don't know what he was doing, why he was doing it. I don't know if he was like, I know that there are women who bathe at night. I don't know if he was just, he absolutely positively was planning to do it, but there's no good reason for David to have been on his roof. And here he is up here and he, this is what he's looking at. And soon to follow, we're not just the sins of looking at something he should not have looked at, but adultery, Right? He committed the sin uh, of adultery. He looked on the woman with lust, which would uh, later Jesus would define that specifically for us as adultery. But then he committed adultery, brought her to his place, right? And, and did what he should not have done. Then murder, right? He killed her husband, Uriah, because his own, uh, uh, his own grief over what he had done, his own regret was eating away at him. And what he did was go even further into it. This all started with the eyes, you guys. This all started with the lust of the eyes, the desires, the appetite of the eyes going in the wrong direction, looking at the wrong stuff, right? There's a lot of truth, a lot of wisdom to those simple words of that old song, be careful little eyes what you see, right? We didn't put that in kids' heads because it was cute and it filled some time. We put that in kids' heads because it's the right thing. Be careful, be afraid of looking at the wrong thing because it can end in further sin. It can end in murder. It can end in the death of your firstborn or of, of that child, right? The bad things are going to happen. This is important. Be careful what you're looking at. And man, those of you with smartphones that, that don't know how to use them right, be careful what you see. But in addition to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, John mentions what he calls the boastful pride of life. Now it's interesting, I find it interesting, and it's important for you to know that the Greek word that John uses here for life, it does not mean Maybe what you think it means. It does not mean uh, the, the state of being alive, right? Life. It does not mean uh, just not being dead. That is not what this word actually means. This particular word can mean a couple of different things. It can mean the actual period of time. It can be referring to uh, the length of a life, the period of time that someone spends on earth, or it can be used to refer to something similar to what we might call a person's living, right? When we say, how do you make a living? Well, I mean, how do you provide for your existence on earth, right? 
right? How, how do you provide for your needs, your bills, your electric, your, your food, you know, all this stuff? How, how do you do that? So this is referring to, or it can refer to, what a person earns from their job. It can, in this society that we're talking about, where John's writing this culture, what you own, right? Essentially, all the resources that a person has available to sustain their life on earth. It can mean either of those things, the length or the, the things they have, uh, income, possessions, stuff to provide for life on earth. We have to use the context to decide what this is, what this is meaning here, to decide uh, how this is being used here. And when we do, we can see pretty clearly that this is referring to the, the second definition, right? A person's resources, their possessions, okay? The same word is translated uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. We'll get there uh, in a little bit, uh, not today, but I mean in a few weeks, a couple weeks. And it's translated there as the world's goods, right? You see the world's goods there? That is the same word, uh, bios, that's used in our text today in the boastful pride of life. It's translated as life there, just the English word life. Here it's translated as the world's goods because it's definitely talking about the world's goods here, okay? So this boastful pride of life uh, refers to an empty bragging. So an empty bragging based on the stuff you own to sustain your life. That sounds dumb, doesn't it? That sounds like something stupid to do. To, to brag and boast about the stuff that you have to survive on this earth. But, but what, how do people do this today? Their salary, right? The, the car they're able to drive around, um, the house they're able to afford and live in, right? We're just talking about transportation and shelter and income, but people puff it up into this big deal. And, and God's word says it's empty. It's vain. Boastful pride. Boastful pride means uh, that it's based on nothing of any real substance. There's nothing that you're actually standing on that is of value. You're just out there just spouting off garbage. Nonsense. It's only bad for you and potentially the people around you who, who get infected with the same bug you've got with this boastful pride of life. It's doing no one any good, and certainly not you. Yet people do it constantly. The food they eat, the size or location of their house, the furniture, the bank account, the car, the clothes, the financial investments. People brag or do things to draw the attention of others to this kind of stuff. They're doing it constantly. The world thinks this is what makes the world go around, right? Many, many Americans especially, right? Our country is, is fraught with this stuff. We spend hours each day hours and hours each day putting on the show. People online, they, they, they put, as they fill out a social media profile, I don't need to know where you went to college, okay? Most of the time, you're not even looking on the doctor's wall where they went to college, and they're sitting here giving you advice and counsel and, and recommending that we open you up and do things inside your body, and you don't even look at where they went to college. But for some reason, boy, we want to put that on our social media profile where we went to school where we went here and here and there. We want all that stuff. We want people to know, right? People who have something that they think is worth bragging about, they want to put that out there for all the world to know. It happens all the time. But not just education, of course. Uh, your career, uh, what you're driving, like we said, what you're eating even. People want to brag about where they eat, all this stuff, where they shop. And I'm not just talking about the dealership where they bought their car from. And I'm not talking about the stuff that you would think, like where they buy their clothes. There's people who will even shop. They will, they will do one of these things. I only shop at Whole Foods, right? Your groceries are better than my groceries. <laughs> Joke's on you. I don't buy groceries. I go through the drive-thru. <laughs> I don't have time for that, all right? But people brag about this stuff. 
it's kind of sickening. And we're going to laugh at each other about it right now, but there's going to come a moment later this week where you might laugh at yourself or cringe at yourself because you're going to do it this week. Hopefully not, but it's very possible. Now again, do we need a house? Do we need transportation? Mm -hmm. Do we need a means of earning money to provide for our needs? Do we need food, all this stuff? Yes, and our Father knows that we need these things. We're told that, but we've been commanded not to make our life about this stuff. Don't brag about this stuff. Don't pursue this stuff. Don't commit yourself to this stuff. Don't make your life about this stuff. Don't give your lives over to the pursuit of these things or the boasting of these things. John says all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the, the Father. It's from the world. These are not the things that we're to love. Our love, our commitment, our devotion should be directed toward God and toward his church. It is a worldly mind that focuses on these unspiritual, temporal things. These things are going to be passing away. All right? So we've learned from verse 15 that there's two choices for where we're going to direct our love. And we've seen now from verse 16 that there are three dangers that we need to be aware of and avoid. And now John's going to point out to us in verse 17 that there is one way. One way. Okay, there may be two choices and there may be three dangers, but ultimately for the Christian, there's just one way. One way that leads to life. One way that leads to abundant life, eternal life we're talking about. Verse 17, John said, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever, right? That's in contrast. The world's passing away and also its lusts. Here's the contrast. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Okay, so let's, let's deal with this fact. The world is passing away. He, say, he says here, the world is, in present tense, passing away. Right now, the, the process is currently going on. The world is passing away. The end of uh, 1 Corinthians 7.31 uh, points this out to us, says this, point blank, the form of this world, right? The stuff, right? We can see it. We can see erosion. We can see rust. We can see disease and decay. We can see uh, melting. We can see freezing. We can see all this stuff that's going on. We see that the form of this world is passing away. And one day, the world as we know it today is going to pass away completely. God said he's going to see to that, right? Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Now listen to this. And the earth and its works. Kind of sounds like all that is in the world uh, or the world and also its lusts, right? The world itself and the stuff that people chase after in the world, right? The earth and its works will be burned up. It's all going away. Every bit of it. The world as we know it, it's all going to be gone. John says the world is passing away. He also says, and also its lusts, right? Not just the world, but also its lusts. So what he's pointing out there, just, just to kind of make sure we cover this basically, is that when the world is finally destroyed, you guys, these desires of the flesh... These desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all this stuff, these will not be things that a person is even capable of being concerned about. You see how this, this plugs in, how this connects? He's saying, don't go after what's in the world. Don't be committed to, don't love the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Don't go after all that stuff because the world itself is passing away and also this stuff that I'm talking about. 
It's going away. There's going to come a point in time where you're not even going to be capable of being concerned about this stuff anymore. Because it's all going to be gone. The whole system needing to make money. Needing to, to um, have this education or that education. Needing to have a car to get around. You're not going to need any of that stuff. None of that stuff's even going to register on the radar anymore. We are living like nothing less than spiritually blind men when we live for these things of this world. It is a pointless pursuit at best to live for the world when it's passing away. When it's going to be destroyed completely. This is why you can be radical right now. <clears throat> because present tense, as we speak, it's passing away. And there's going to come a point in time where God says, it's over, curtain closed, it's all gone. Time is no more. Time's up. And now, are you with me? Are you against me? This is why you can be radical because none of this stuff matters. God said if you, if you uh, seek him first and his righteousness, his kingdom and his righteousness, he's going to take care of all of these needs, right? The fact that we said we do need food, we do need clothes, we do need shelter, we do need transportation. He said I'll take care of that if, I'll take care of that if you pursue me, my kingdom, and my righteousness, right? All this stuff is going away completely. And in contrast to living for a world and its desires that are passing away, John says in the second half of this verse, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's only one way, right? There's one way to live forever. In this message, we've seen that there's two choices, three dangers, but John points out that there's just one very obvious way. Do the will of the Father. Because the one who does the will of God lives forever. Guys, in this world, we will have, we currently have, and we will continue to have no shortage of temptation to live for the world. Every commercial says live for the world. Pretty much every TV show says live for the world. Even watching sports, you're going to hear messages that say live for the world. You're going to see a game that says live for the world. Because those guys aren't starting families or those guys started and are forsaking families to travel all around the world to, to, to play this sport, right? You look at it all over the place. Everybody's living for the world. There's no temptation, no, no shortage of temptation to live for this world. It is easy to be tempted. This is a warning. I'm not just pointing out the obvious. This is a warning. Guys, it is easy. It is very easy to find yourself uh, giving yourself over to these things. Giving yourselves to sports, to a career, to a hobby, to your image, to your reputation, to your selfish pleasures, to your impulses, to the, the, the success of your children, and, and to your own success, right? Your own worldly view of success, the, what the world calls success. Having the, the amount of money in your bank account and, and the square footage in your home and, and the, uh, the certain model year of car or whatever, you know, that kind of pursuit. It's easy to pursue those things because the whole world's doing it and so there's no backlash there's no rub right there, there's nothing that that hurts there's no pain created when you just do what the whole rest of the world is doing but John says do not love the world nor the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father but is from the world and then that last verse is the, 
I think the confidence builder for why we can do what John has said we need to do, which is forsake the world. He says the world is passing away and also its lusts. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's just one way. There's just one way. There's two choices. There's three real apparent dangers that we need to be very concerned about, look out for, and stay away from. And there's one way. The one who does the will of God lives forever.